All right, if you've got your Bibles, open to um, John chapter 3. And what's the um, key verse in the book of John? It tells us the purpose. 20.31, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for the whole book of, of John. So we're still in chapter 3. So this is such an important chapter and this whole thing about being born again. Uh, I thought we'd just read, I didn't actually get through this first section last week, so we're going to read the entire first section together um, about being born again. So we'll start in verse 1 and read through to verse 21, and then we'll um, finish talking about that. And then we'll look into the next section with John the Baptist, witness of Jesus. Oh, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this awesome chapter in the Bible. It's so important that we understand what being born again is and this being born from above as a being, as opposed to being um, born as a human, earthly, uh, or from below. So I just pray that you'll help us to understand this and to realize that this is a gift um, beyond comparison. And uh, it makes such a, when we understand this, it makes a big difference in how we live our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I like that um, verse there. I'm just going to pause here for a sec. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So we can't see someone be born again. There's no physical change, but we do see the effects in their life. That's how it should be. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. That's called having a clean conscience. So, chapter 3. What does it mean to be born again? Now, we went through that in detail last week, um, about this change of identity, like growing up, going from being a boy into a man, like getting married. You're going from being single to being married. That's your change in identity. You're a a different set of um, rules, if you want to call it that, for your life, where you can't live the old life anymore because you, you're in a different situation. So your identity has changed, which changes the way you behave. It changes your responsibilities. So it's all about a change of lifestyle because of a change of who you are. I was a boy, but now I'm a man. Or if for some of you, um, you're a girl, but now you're a woman. Okay, I was single, but now I'm married for some of us. My duties and responsibilities have completely changed. So do you remember those days when you're at school and you didn't have to really worry about anything? <laughs> you just, you know, you go home and you don't have to cook the food because it's already there. Um, you don't have to worry about the mortgage payment. You don't have to worry about maintaining the car. It's all done for you. It's all, you know, there's no responsibilities. But then something happens. You grow up. And those days of no troubles and no worries are, are gone. Suddenly, if you're going to survive as an adult, you need to act like an adult. You need to be willing to work, to get a job, to serve others, to put others' needs ahead of your own. You need to embrace your new identity. So our change in thinking leads to a change in behavior. And that's a sneak preview of what repentance is all about. So, you know, if I'm going to own and drive a car, I need to drive carefully and maintain it regularly. If I don't, then my car will break down and I'll lose my license. If I have my own house, I need to pay the mortgage and maintain it. If I don't, I'll, I'll end up destitute and disrespected. I'll be homeless. If I'm going to survive as a married man, then, then I need to act like a married man. My life as a single guy needs to be left behind. It's not compatible with my new life with my wife. So with all these things, there's a great joy and blessing, but also a great amount of work to do to maintain these blessings. So the weeds in our marriage, for example, the weeds can grow, the roof can start to leak, the rats and mice can get in and breed, so to speak. You know, things happen in your marriage, you let it kind of let it go, you don't maintain it. And suddenly the marriage starts to stink. It has lots of holes in it and is no longer beautiful, joyful, or a blessing. And this is a consequence of forgetting my new identity as a married man and all the responsibilities that come along with it, like, you know, job with your wife with understanding. So that's the practical examples of a change of identity. For the Christian, it's also true. I'm now a part of God's family, a part of the kingdom of heaven. There are tremendous privileges and blessings available to me, but also a whole lot of responsibility. I'm a bond servant of Christ. And the bottom line is I'm not my own anymore. 
I belong to him. He bought me with a price, a very great price. And the bottom line is that the more responsible I am, the more obedient I am to my calling, then the more joyful, content, and at peace I will be. And that's, that's how it works. A football player focuses on football because he sees himself as a football player. That's his identity. Every decision he makes is related back to how it will affect his performance as a football player. So, I can't eat that. It'll make me fat and it'll slow me down. I can't skip training because I'll lose my fitness. I can't hang out with those druggies because it'll affect my concentration and my ability to play the game. So everything a professional footballer does is related to his football. Likewise, a Christian focuses on Christ. We are Christ-like, Christian, right? How we can love and know him more and therefore experience greater intimacy and joy. And that's our ultimate purpose in life. That's the reason we were created. Every decision we make as Christians must be related back to how it will affect my relationship with Christ. Will it help my relationship with Christ, or will it hinder it? My identity is that I'm in Christ. I've been bought with a price. I'm a son of my Heavenly Father. Anything I do that pleases the Father will bring both Him and me joy. Conversely, or on the other hand, anything that I do that displeases Him when I'm disobedient will grieve Him and cause Him to have to discipline me, which grieves me, so that I will get rid of whatever it is that is stealing my joy that is causing me not to draw near to Him. So, with the privileges we get as adults, as you know, um, whatever we we have now, there comes responsibility. But would you want to go back to those days where you didn't have those res- responsibilities? Would you Would you be willing to go back and live as a teenager in Mum's house again? Not have your own car. Not be able to make those decisions. You know, none of us would. I mean, I I I definitely wouldn't. Because back then you were a slave to what others wanted you to do. You had to go to school. You had to go to a particular school. There's no, you know, arguing about that. You just had to go. You had to eat the dinner that was on the table. You were a slave to the, to the decisions that other people made for you. You didn't dictate what mum put on the table, right? So now we're growing up, we can make our own choices. As a Christian, we also make our own choices. My good choices lead to life and peace. They are the choices inspired, empowered, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's me allowing Jesus to live his life through me. Just like Jesus only did the things he saw the Father doing and only said what the Father told him to speak. So I just want to show you a couple of verses which um, highlight what Jesus did. So we have to make a choice of what who we listen to. And Romans 8, 5 and 6 says, Those who are dominated... By the sinful nature, think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. The next one is um, John five nineteen and the first part of verse 20. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son 
also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And the next verse is very similar. It's in John chapter 12, 48 and 49. I don't speak on my own authority. In other words, I don't say just what I want to say. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. So Jesus, in his life on earth, was completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. He had... He was the most joyful person to be around because he was the most obedient person towards God around. That's that's how it goes. Jesus experienced fullness of joy because he was fully submitted to the Father's will. He experienced that peace that passes understanding. Jesus knew what his identity was, what his purpose was. Do you know what that was? What was his identity? He was a servant, yeah. He was a servant of the Father, submitted to the Father, and his Father delighted in him. Yes, Jesus is God, but his identity while he was on earth was that of a servant. And a couple of verses here, just to highlight this. Isaiah 42, 1-4 Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. This is the Father talking about the Son. My elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And it goes on. And then Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. So, Jesus is or identified himself as a servant. And this is a a longer passage. Um, It it exemplifies Jesus' attitude. It's John 13 and selected verses. It starts in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. Okay, so he knows who who he is, he's God. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So again, Jesus demonstrating to us his servanthood. 
And we will find our identity and joy in this life if we identify ourselves as a servant. It says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if I've been born again, then this is my new identity. My old way of life where I did whatever I wanted to do is gone. It's dead and buried. My old life was crucified with Christ. In its place is a life whose sole focus is to live in a love relationship with the Father, which, like Jesus modeled, is only possible if I'm submitted to the Father. So my joy, my contentment, my satisfaction, peace and love are experienced in direct proportion to my submission to his will. Will I forsake my old life and allow Jesus to live his life through me? Will I say only the things that he wants me to say and do only those things he shows me to do? Will I remember my new identity, that I have been born again, I've been born from above? Or will I do things that don't profit my relationship with the Father, allowing other things to become more important? So that was just a um, a revision of... Um, uh, or an, a further explanation of being born again. It's a new identity, and as we embrace that identity as servants of Christ, servants of God, then we get to experience all the benefits that come with that. But if we forget who we are, if then we start living the old life, then it doesn't work. We, we end up suffering and um, causing shame. So let's go on to verse 18. Uh, I'm just going to read verses 18 to 21. It says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So verse 19 is a key verse here. I'll read that again. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because the deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth, notice the doing there, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So what's the primary reason not these all these little things that excuses that people come up with. What's the primary reason that people don't come to the light? That they they refuse to believe the gospel or accept the gospel. They love the darkness rather than light. That's that's the that's the issue. Okay, it's a it's a case. It's a matter of the condition of the human heart. We're all born with this heart that does not want to go near God. And it's only the Holy Spirit drawing us that um, allows us to come to Him. And when you understand this, you start to see why people are so anti-God, why they push so hard for sinful practices to be introduced and accepted, because they they really love the darkness. Ray Comfort says, Jesus said that we loved the darkness of sin 
rather than the light of righteousness, because the human heart finds pleasure in sin. If you don't believe it, visit the adult section of your local video store. Look at the covers to see the type of entertainment the hearts of men and women crave. Unspeakable violence, inconceivable horror, and unending sexual perversion. So that's that's the, the condition of the human heart. God doesn't reform the heart, he transforms it, he regenerates it. So I would like to ask the question, why does exposure to the gospel create two different responses? Have you ever heard the phrase, the same sunlight that melts the wax also hardens the clay? Ever heard that before? You know, you apply heat to clay and it gets hard, like bricks. But if you apply heat to wax, it melts. So God's light or revelation of his plan of salvation is like the light. The sinner's heart, the condition of his heart, determines his response. The person whose heart is tender will respond to God. But the person whose heart is bent on evil will harden their heart further against God and will remain in darkness. Uh, Wait, Ray again, Ray Comfort. Sinners should note, after Pharaoh repeatedly hardened his heart against God, it's Exodus 8.15 and 32, God then hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 10.27. Those who continually reject God will be given up to uncleanness, vile passions, and a debased mind. That's Romans one twenty four to 28 Now, I put this verse here. It says, it's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So if you feel convicted as you read this chapter of John, John chapter 3, and learn about being born again, it is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. You can choose to respond or to rebel. That's it. The choice is yours. But if you rebel, if you choose to reject the message of salvation, just remember that your heart will become hard or harder, and the next time, if there is a next time, it will be even harder for you to respond. And that is why the scripture says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like the people of Israel did in the rebellion. So we have learned about being born again. John three sixteen says that we all that all we have to do is believe. Oh, that sounds easy. Okay. But what about repentance? Doesn't the Bible also talk about repentance? So I would like to just look at repentance and see how it affects evangelism, uh, false converts, and and us. And then we'll get it. We'll quickly finish the. Rest of the chapter. And I've got another quote from Ray Comfort here. I got this from the um, Evidence Bible. It says, its title is, Is Repentance Necessary for Salvation? And it's a good summary of the topic, so I'm just going to read it out. It is true that numerous Bible verses speak of the promise of salvation with no mention of repentance. These verses merely say to believe on Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Acts 16.31, Romans 10.9 as examples. However, the Bible makes it clear that God is holy and man is sinful and that sin makes a separation between the two. Your sin has separated you from God. Isaiah 59.1 and 2. Without repentance from sin, wicked men cannot have fellowship with the holy God. We are dead 
in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, one, and, and until we forsake them through repentance, we cannot be made alive in Christ. The scriptures speak of repentance to life, Acts 11.18. We turn from sin to the Saviour. This is why Paul preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Acts 20.21. 20, the first public word Jesus preached was repent, Matthew 4.17. John the Baptist began his ministry the same way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus told his hearers that without repentance they would perish, Luke 13, 3. If belief is all that is necessary for salvation, then the logical conclusion is that one never need repent. However, the Bible tells us that a false convert believes, and yet is not saved, Luke 8, 13. He remains a worker of iniquity. So look at the warning of Scripture. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that's habitual sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1, 6. The Scriptures also say, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them, that's repentance, will have mercy. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Jesus said that there was joy in heaven over one sinner who gets saved or repents. <laughs> Repentance, isn't it? Okay. Luke fifteen ten. If there is no repentance, there is no joy because there is no salvation. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he commanded his hearers to repent for the remission of sins. Acts two thirty eight. So without repentance, there is no remission of sins. We are still under God's wrath. Peter further said, "Repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out." Acts three nineteen. We cannot be converted unless we repent. God himself commands all men everywhere, that's no exceptions, to repent, Acts 17.30. Peter said a similar thing at Pentecost, repent and let every one of you be baptized. So if repentance was not necessary for salvation, why why then did Jesus command that repentance be preached to all nations in the Great Commission in Luke 24.47? With so many scriptures speaking of the necessity of repentance for salvation, one can only wonder why anyone would not preach repentance as we have been commanded to. So that was the, um, the note from Ray Comfort. So what is repentance? Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So knowing God's will is what you do, but that follows God changing the way you think. So based on that, repentance for me is a change of mind or heart that leads to a change of behavior. So we invite God to change us. That's what we do when we're saved. We invite God, you change me. You forgive me, come into my heart, you change me, you make me like you, because we can't change ourselves. And that change on the inside then produces a change on the outside. 
and we come back to being born again, it's a change of identity. I'm not the same person anymore. We see ourselves now as being the bride of Christ, as being in Christ, as being a new creation, as belonging to the kingdom of light, as being accepted in the beloved, as being adopted into God's family, as being a son of God, as being a bond slave, that's a slave for love for life, as being a saint, not a sinner, as having a new heart with new desires to love and please God. So, overall, we are born again. We are born from above. God changes us on the inside. He gives us a new heart with new desires to love, obey, and worship Him. Now, what repentance is not? Here's an example of what repentance is not. You might relate to this in school. you got this kid who won't do his work in school. All right, so he's sitting there at his desk and he's throwing planes and spitballs, whatever you know, kids do in school when they don't want to work. And the teachers are scratching their heads and they're thinking, well, how can you get this guy to work? Well, the football season's coming up and this kid loves football. So let's, let's say he can't play football unless he does his work for a whole week. And so they tell him that. And guess what the kid does? He goes, well, I really want to play on the school football team. So I'll do my work for the week. And so he does. He works for the week and he's allowed to play football. But what happens in the next week? There's no more work because it was an external motivation. It wasn't an internal change. Okay. The teachers were going, yes, this guy's working. Our plan worked until the next week. Now what are we going to do? What other thing are we going to try to get this guy to do his work? Okay. So this is being conformed, not transformed. Now putting pressure on him, trying to mold him into that system of school using football, but he, they weren't transforming his heart. And that's what happens with a false convert. There is a change of behavior, but no change of heart. And eventually the behavior goes back to reflect the true heart condition. Now we get to the um, last section of this chapter. Uh, it's We'll start at verse 22, read through to the end. It's John the Baptist witnessing about Christ. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, so basically Jesus is now baptizing, and more people are going to Jesus and the disciples than they are to John. John answered and said to him, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John's losing disciples, yet his joy is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from from heaven is above all or greater. 
and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. And the opposite being, if you don't receive it, you're certifying that God is a liar. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Holy Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So I'm just going to run through this fairly quickly. It is, it's um, fairly straightforward. So verse 22 to 24. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So, why did John baptize in Anon? What was the reason you think that John baptized in Anon? Did he receive any heavenly instructions? to minister at that particular spot? Was he fulfilling Old Testament prophecy? No. Yeah, very simple. <laughs> now, many times we make the, finding the will of God for ourselves quite difficult, but we don't need to. Just just do what's obvious. If God wants us to, to baptize people, for example, then we find a place where there's lots of water and go there. So <laughs> We don't have to pray, God, where do you want us to do this when there's, there's water over here, so we'll go there. There's a story of um, Chuck Smith when, of how he determined it was God's will he go to Costa Mesa. You know what the, the, the thing was that caused him to choose that particular church? It was the water. Surfing. He was a surfer. So he went to a place where there was good surf. That was his criteria for seeking a church. And that was also God's will because God gave him that desire to surf, you see. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Augustine said it best when he essentially said, Love God with all of your heart and do whatever you please. If you truly love God with all of your heart, your desires will be in harmony with his will. Therefore, I encourage you to trust the Lord to use your desires, interests, and abilities in his naturally supernatural way to bring joy to your heart and glory to himself. So, whatever it is, just, so to speak, go to where the water is. (laughs) All right. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, remember, behold, the Lamb of God, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So John's disciples are getting a bit upset here. Now, how did John see this uh, competition? Did he see it as competition? No. He saw it as completion of his ministry. What was his purpose? To lead people to Jesus, right? And what are people doing? They're going to Jesus. And so John's going, yes. All the people are deserting him. He's all alone. Probably just a handful of people there. I'm just picturing this in my mind. What does it say in the scriptures again? It says, and all are coming to him. So as John's disciples, they're all sitting there going, Twilling their thumbs, there's no one to baptize today, John. You know, we're here, what are we doing? You know, they're all going to Jesus, and they all start complaining about it. And John says, no, that's our purpose, that's what we're here for. We're meant 
Jesus, that we, we want to ascend to Jesus. We don't want him to come to us. And that should be our attitude and ministry, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to point people to Jesus. And verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So John knew he had nothing apart from God. So any gifts, abilities, any ministry opportunities we have are a direct gift from our Father, our Heavenly Father. So if there's anything we do in which we excel, and we all have areas where we're strong, where we excel, it's only because God has sovereignly and graciously given you the necessary desires, abilities, and provisions. And someone said, God uses us and blesses us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. Verse 28 and 29, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So, deciphering this in the Jewish culture, the bridegroom, or as far as the New Testament goes, we are the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. So who's the friend of the bridegroom? It'll be John the Baptist. Okay, he's leading. That's his, his role. I'll come to that in a minute. So when John f- first met Jesus, you know how old they were? Yeah, or really, they're in their mother's wombs. So it says, John leapt for joy when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, entered the room. Luke one forty one. And here, at the end of his ministry, John is still finding his joy in the sound of Jesus' voice. And to explain the reason for his ministry and for the, his joy, John used an analogy similar or that his disciples would understand. John was comparing himself or putting himself as like the best man in the wedding. And in those days, the custom was that the best man was the friend of the bridegroom. And he invited the guests to the wedding. He made preparations for the wedding. And finally, upon completion of the wedding, escorted the bride and groom into the bridal chamber. Then it was the voice of the bridegroom signaling to him that everything was okay with the chamber that brought joy to the heart of the best man. So Jesus is signaling that everything's okay. So when is our joy fulfilled? Is it when we get something from the Lord? Is it when we do something for the Lord? Or is it when we hear the voice of the Lord? What do you think? When is our joy fulfilled? When we get something from the Lord, when we do something for the Lord, or when we hear the voice of the Lord? It's when we hear His voice. It's when it's that communication, it's that fellowship. If you're expecting your joy to be fulfilled through a nicer husband or a nicer wife, uh, a faster car, a better job, (laughs) you're headed for the disaster and disappointment. If you're caught up in thinking, I can move to this place, teach that Bible study, or sing with the other worship team, If I can just be effective here or use there, then I'll be joyful. Again, you're headed for disappointment. But if you spend time with the Lord, reading His Word, and simply listening for His voice, your joy will be fulfilled. If you're a baby Christian like John in the womb, you will leap for joy at the sound of His voice. And if you're a seasoned saint, guess what? When you hear His voice, you'll still be jumping for joy. 
because that's where our joy is found. It's in him. All right, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And someone said, seven words which capture the essence of true ministry. Jesus should become greater and more visible, and the servant should become less and less visible. 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard that he testifies. So John is making it clear to everybody where Jesus came from. Jesus came from heaven. He came down from heaven. That makes him different, but it also makes him greater than everybody else. Okay, He is greater than everybody else because he came from heaven. So Jesus didn't speak theoretically. He spoke experientially. When Moses lifted up the brass snake, guess who was there? Jesus. Okay. Not in a human form, of course, but he was there. The rock that followed him was Christ, as it says in Corinthians. So Jesus was always there. He's eternal. He's always existed. When Ezekiel prophesied to the wind, Jesus was there. Jesus is talking from eyewitness accounts. He knows everything because he's, he's seen it. He even knew it before it happened. And no one received his testimony. So God says, this is an application for us, God says, rejoice evermore, in everything give thanks, be holy for I am holy. But, you know, sometimes we refuse his testimony, saying, oh, I can't really rejoice because I'm really suffering in this dysfunctional family. You know, I can't really rejoice because this person is just being so mean to me. No, <laughs> that's not the source of your joy. Jesus is. Believe him. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony, Jesus' testimony, has certified that God is true. So the one who does receive his testimony will proclaim loudly with John, God is true. We need to believe that God's commandments are his enablements. So what God commands us to do, he will enable us to perform. So some of us, or I at one stage, I think we all do at some stage, we can excuse sin and, you know, with psychological jargon. You know, what what do we call um, drunkenness today? Alcoholism. You know, it's a disease. It's, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. you got this disease, you know. It's not a sin issue anymore. It's a disease. And so with psychological jargon, we can twist things around. And, and uh, what about this one? Flee youthful, youthful lusts. Oh, I can't help it. It's natural. It's all about love, isn't it? That's, that's what the world says today. And that's in the church as well. How many Christians have embraced homosexuality? They're not fleeing youthful lusts. What about reckon the old man dead unto sin? We need to do that to experience God's faithfulness at every step. Verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given by measure, but limited, if we can call it quantity. I don't know how the best word to describe it, but like Saul, the Spirit was given and that he was taken away. He was given to empower people for a certain ministry, like, you know, kings and priests and things like that. 
but not not so with Jesus. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Now, Ephesians 1.10, and this is a plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So the Son is central. Jesus is central to the Father's heart, his plan and his will. Now, on believing in Jesus, we are not only given eternal life, but everlasting life. It speaks of a better quality of life, faith, hope, and love. And this new and better life um, begins the moment we believe on him. Eternal life begins the moment we believe. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. So this chapter, I'm being born again, finishes with this verse, which kind of sums it up. If you, if you believe, you have this new life. If you don't believe, then the wrath of God abides on you, is resting on you. Now, a couple of things with the language here. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That word is, it means believe, it means to trust. And the second time the word believe is used when it says he who does not believe is a different Greek word and it means to be disobedient. So it's not using the same word and just contrasting. It's actually a different word. So you could say he who trusts in the Son has everlasting life and he who is disobedient to the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. So we talked about repentance before. If there's no obedience, there's no salvation. So you could, as Ray Comfort says, the disobedient will not see the salvation of God, no matter what prayer they have prayed, because they refuse to surrender their will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And a verse, to, so I'm not making this up. Second Thessalonians one eight. The MEV is a modern English version. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with eternal destruction, isolated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They don't know God and they do not obey. Notice it doesn't say they don't believe the gospel, it says they don't obey the gospel. So why does the wrath of God abide on the one who does not believe or obey his son because they're not willing to accept that greatest gift. They're saying this great gift that God has given us, they're saying, I don't want it. Keep it. It's worthless. And it's like really a terrible thing to do. It's an insult to God. And they're calling God a liar, as it says in First John. So, this world, if picture this, you know, this world is sinking fast into the quicksand of sin. So if you're sinking into quicksand, God doesn't condemn us for being in that place. We're all born in this quicksand. Does that make sense? We're all born in quicksand, we're all sinking, we're all going to die because of sin. So God doesn't condemn us for being sinners. The only thing he condemns us for is for not reaching out and grabbing hold of his son and letting him pull us out. Okay, So we can be saved by reaching out to Jesus, by looking unto Jesus, and he will pull us out of that situation. He, will, he brought us out of that situation. 
So being saved means being saved from the penalty and power of sin. So we are declared innocent by God and have the power to live pure and holy lives. So that's what the condemnation is, is when we refuse God's offer of being saved. Now I'm going to finish up this chapter, we just summarize it with the three musts. So you could say that John 3 is a must read. There are three prominent musts or obvious musts in John 3. So there's a sinner's must, you must be born again. The Savior's must, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the Sovereign's must, he must increase and I must decrease in John 3.30. So firstly, the must of the sinner. John 3 verse 7. So this is again summarizing the whole chapter. Um, John 3 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now George Whitefield, a mighty preacher of the colonial era, was asked why he always preached that man must be born again. Why do I preach you must be born again, said Whitefield? Because you must be born again. (laughs) That's his answer. You must be born again. So the message of Jesus Christ is not about giving us advice on how to be better people. It's about seeing the Spirit of God birth something new in our lives. It's not about reformation. It's about regeneration. And I've got this um, story to illustrate this point. Two servants of a king constantly argued over whether a man could be made a gentleman or whether he had to be born one. Finally, in frustration, the king gave each of them some money and sent them out to settle their dispute. The servant who held the viewpoint that a man could be made a gentleman walked into an inn where he ordered a cup of hot chocolate. After a few minutes, in walked a cat dressed like a waiter, carrying a cup of hot chocolate between his front paws. It's a pretty smart cat, right? Oh, said the servant to the innkeeper, here's my answer, for if a common cat can be trained to be a waiter, certainly a man can be trained to be a gentleman. Sir, I want to buy your cat. That would be £1,000, said the innkeeper. No problem, said the servant, as he paid the innkeeper and went on his way. As the excited servant travelled towards the palace, his opponent got word of the cat I know, he said. How can I argue my point against a cat who can serve hot chocolate? But as he headed dejectedly towards the palace, his eye caught something in a shop window that pleased him greatly. Could I buy what's in the window, he said. Gladly, answered the shopkeeper as he put the servant's purchase in a box. So it was that both servants arrived at the palace within moments of each other. Do you have your answer? asked the king. Yes, said the fellow with the cat. Here is proof that a man can be made into a gentleman, he said, as the cat walked in, bringing the king a cup of hot chocolate. At that point, the other servant opened his box and released twelve mice. As the twelve mice scampered across the floor, the cat dropped the cup and saucer. I imagine the hot chocolate splashing all over the king and took off after the mice, providing conclusive proof that one cannot be made a gentleman because he will eventually return to his basic instincts. So there you go. I like that story. So it's true. You can wear a tie. 
go to church, learn how to be a Christian. You can sing in the choir and take communion. You can go through the motions, but sooner or later, a mouse will run across your path and your real nature will suddenly dominate you unless you're born again. Okay, that's what happens with the false converts. That's why Jesus wasn't talking about reformation. He was talking about regeneration, a transformation when he said, you must be born again. Now, the second must is, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 3, 14. So, um, John Carlson has this plain words with manna. So the children of Israel walking around in the wilderness, and they grew tired of the manna, this bread substance that God had provided for them. So they made um, bamana splits, bamana bread, manna cotty, but finally said, man alive, we're tired of this. <clears throat> so then poisonous snakes began to bite them as they complained and grumbled and murmured, and they began to die by the thousands. So they sought the Lord for remedy, and Moses was told to make a brass snake on a pole and erect it in the center of the camp. And you know the story, if you looked at this brass snake, then you would be healed. But some people in the camp, I, I believe, probably would have said, what kind of cure can there be in a brass snake on a pole? But those with faith who simply looked up at the bronze snake were spared and they were healed. And you'll find that in Numbers 21. So what is to speak of? Jesus Christ was made a snake when he was made sin for you and me. He was made a sinner and he was judged. So we have been bitten by the snake of sin and we also are snakes because we hurt other people too. We bite other people. We have wounded them, lied to them and cheated them. But here is the good news. Jesus said, because you've been bitten by the snake of sin and because you are also the, the snakes through which sin is unleashed or spread, I will become like you yet without venom. I will go to the cross in order that you who have been bitten will be healed. That is the penalty of sin. And in order that you who are biting will be forgiven. So you've got the penalty and the power of sin there. If you will look on me and believe in me, you will be saved. I must be lifted up. There is no other way. So the must of the Savior is that the only way for us to be saved is through the cross. And the last must is verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So like John, we must get out of the way and talk to people about Jesus, focus our attention on him, and live for the purpose of sharing him. In other words, we must decrease. If I don't pull on a big salary, it doesn't matter. If I don't make the AFL, who cares? If I don't have a nice house, it's okay. I must decrease so that I can be about the business of sharing him. Jesus said, If you die to self, you will find life. Matthew 10.39 Therefore, the more time, effort, and money we spend on our own hobbies, pursuits, and pleasures for personal gain, ultimately, the more miserable we will be. But the more we say, I must decrease and he must increase, the more clearly we'll hear his voice and the greater our joy will be. Father, I thank you. Lord, for this um, fantastic chapter. There's so much in here, and I feel like I just barely scratched the surface. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to uh, understand the main points here, about being born again, about the method of salvation, which is the cross, and about our response, which is to to obey, and our attitude, which is to 
to glorify you and not ourselves. So I just pray that you'll help us to um, to work through these things and to meditate on them. And if um, there's anything you want to convict us of, uh, I pray that our hearts will be open and we can apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.